Hi, everyone. I'm David Williams, president of strategy consulting firm Health Business Group and host of the Health Biz Podcast, a weekly show where I interview top healthcare entrepreneurs about their lives and careers. If you like this episode, I hope you'll hit that like button and subscribe. My guest today is Sharon Rogers, CEO of Myriad. We'll be talking today about Sharon's extensive involvement in treatments for Alzheimer's disease and Myriad's unique and complementary approach to existing therapies. Sharon, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, David. It's nice to be here. Love to hear a little bit about your uh, upbringing, any childhood influences that have stuck with you through your career. Um, childhood was was fairly normal for all. I would just say I had this sort of overwhelming urge to follow anything scientific, to learn how things worked was fascinating for me, and especially to learn how the human body worked. I was always sort of mesmerized by the idea that our bodies could do so many different things and wanted to be able to understand it. What did you do for education after high school? After high school, uh, I started working because I, I didn't have a lot of financial resources available to me. So I started working and going to a community college at the same time and uh, working hard. I was able to get through that and then go to Ohio State Uni Capital University to finish my undergrad. And from Capital University, went into Ohio State University College of Medicine to do my doctoral degree there. It was a very competitive program, uh, but it was a good program, and I knew it was one that was speaking to me. Yeah, you know, I saw on the bio on, on the uh, company website that you started a business while in graduate school. What kind of business was that? Uh, you do strange things in graduate school. I, I have sure. to say, but yes, this was with my boyfriend at the time, who was later my, my husband for a couple of decades. And uh, he was looking for something new and different to do while I was in graduate school. So we came up with this idea to start a buffalo wing place. And a lot of people have that idea now, but they, they, they didn't then. This was in 1982. So we had $5,000 and a lot. Uh, we rented space on the Ohio State University campus from the Hare Krishnas. And uh, using that facility, we cleaned it, we scrubbed it, we did a lot of things, mostly while I was studying for my qualifying exams. And we opened our first location then. And then we opened a second location and a third location and a fourth location. And now you actually know this nationwide as Buffalo Wild Wings. So that was outstanding. That was our, our first uh, foray into business. We had no idea what we were doing. No idea. It sounds, it sounds good. Well, you got to start it and then it went from there. So that's, uh, yeah. that sounds pretty good. Sometimes it's good not to know too much about it. You know, if you'd known too much about business, you probably wouldn't have started it. No, because it's daunting. It's it's very daunting. And, and I think we were just more naive and it's like, well, of course we can do this. Sure, we can do this. No problem. Now, you mentioned the fascination kind of with the human body and what it can do from growing up. And I saw somewhere, I am assuming that fits in with the uh, Olympic and World Championship judging and figure skating. How did that all come together? Uh, no, that didn't figure in at all. That's just okay. sort of my other life. And so my other life, I was a skater, not a great skater. I was never going to be any kind of champion or award winner or anything of that nature. But uh, I had a good eye. And I enjoyed it tremendously. And so I was sort of invited to come into the officiating realm. 
and to use my skills both as a skater and intellectually to start uh, judging and running and evaluating competitions. So I've been doing that for really more than uh, more, almost 40 years. And in that time, you do develop your skill sets. And so I started then judging internationally as well as nationally. And then international judging, you get more promotions to judge at the world and championship level. And then as you do that, you acquire a lot of knowledge about what the expectations are for skaters who are working at that level. What do they need to show to a set of judges? What do they need to do to succeed? How do they manage the energy of their program while thinking about the technical things that they have to do? And that sort of bar, uh, parlayed into high performance work. So a lot of officials do this now where we work with individuals before their program season starts and throughout the program to help them optimize and continue to optimize so that by the time they get to the championship events late in the season, that everything is as finely tuned as it can possibly be, that their heads are in a good place, and that they're confident that what they put out on the ice is going to be what the judges want to see. Great. I usually yeah, pride myself on making a smooth transition between topics. I'm just going to jump to the next one, which is about okay. Alzheimer's. <laughs> and you may be able to draw a connection there between all the preparation for skating and, and so on for program. But you know, there's been a lot of uh, talk about um, treatments for Alzheimer's that have come out recently, some in late stage development, a lot of controversy and so on. One of the things they always talk about is the first new treatment for Alzheimer's in X years. Of course, the, that means there was one, which is Aricept, uh, mm -hmm. which you worked on. And I wonder what was your role there in Aricept? How did you get uh, involved with, with that? Well, I led the worldwide program for Aricept. So the approvals in all countries around the world were through my work. How did I get there is a different story. I'd been in pharma, actually I did my dissertation defense on a Friday, loaded up my dog and some extra boxes. My furniture was already moved for me. And on Monday I started out in my first job in pharma. So on Friday I was wearing a lab coat with rat blood splashed across the front. Yeah. And my hair was tied back in a paper towel. And then on Monday, I had an office and a secretary and people were giving me credit cards. And it was nice. It was, uh, yeah, it was sort of uh, mind bending. But it is a business that I love. And I loved it from the very day I started because you're really working at a sort of molecular level to interrupt some process that is pathological and try to make it therapeutic. And whenever you interrupt one pathway, there are always many others that you're perturbing at the same time. So the challenge is an understanding and how to do what you want without the least impact on other things that might cause adverse events or cause the effect to be less what you'd like for it to be. I couldn't ask for a better job to do. So my first job was with uh, American large cap pharma company. And I moved from there to Roche, which was a Swiss-based pharma company. And so I learned how the Americans worked and how the Swiss worked. And while I was at Roche, I got a call from a, a headhunter, an executive search firm, about a Japanese company that was starting up operations in the U.S. And it was a startup. And I thought, well, I've worked with European companies, American companies. I've not worked with a Japanese company. I see opportunity there to understand and expand. And so I, I looked closer at the company and in their pipeline, they had this drug called E2020. And E2020 was a cholinesterase inhibitor for Alzheimer's disease. 
And I'd been following these other programs by other companies and seeing the failures and telling my friends, as you only do when you're young and impetuous, this should work. Yeah. If someone's doing something wrong because this should work. Scientifically, this should work. Why is it not working? And many people said, don't do this, Sharon. It's a startup. You're the sixth person who's going to be hired. They have no presence in the US. These drugs, uh, they have a hard time. You're gonna ruin your career. And I was just determined. I said, no, this should work. And this is a small company. So I'll get an opportunity to start from the very beginning and to work on it. That company was Azai with its startup operations in the US. It was one of the best decisions I ever made in my life. And I still respect Azai tremendously as a company. Their corporate culture is wonderful, caring, ethical in so many ways. But they actually gave me this freedom, this young person who had no track record of anything. They just assumed I would figure it out. And so I didn't want to let them down, worked hard to see what was happening in the field, tried to make adjustments and modifications and outcome measures, patient, patient selection, uh, how studies were approached, what the thinking was, because it is science and science is all about hypothesis testing. And a lot of times I think in pharma, especially uh, people are not willing to understand that you have to fail many times before you succeed as you do in any scientific experience. They just want the upside and not the downside. And I've been able to watch all the downside in Alzheimer's disease research and try to use that to get us an upside with a better design trial, a good agent, nice safety profile, and a company that was supportive. And that is how Aricept came about. Uh, to this day, it set the standard for quality of trials and for being, um, Still, it is the standard of care. It's been almost 25 years and it remains a standard of care. I'm not, um, I'm proud of that, but I'm not proud of the fact that we haven't done better since then. And since Great. then, we've been in another phase of hypo hypotheticals, testing Great. one hypothesis or another. And the amyloid hypothesis is one of many. Personally, I never bought into that as a one size fits all because even back in my earliest days, I understood that this is a very complicated disease. We all accumulate amyloid as we grow older. We all accumulate tau as we grow older. We accumulate things called polyubiquitinylated proteins. That's many syllables, but basically these are old and misfolded and sort of gnarly, unusable proteins that our bodies become less efficient at getting rid of. This is part of the aging process. You know, as you're talking about the so-called uh, amyloid hypothesis, which is a big one, can you talk a little bit about how that, you know, came to be kind of the dominant way of thinking uh, in, this, in this area and what that's done as a positive and maybe not so positive? Um, it was the most obvious thing that people could see on histopathology. That's how it came to be a dominant hypothesis. Yeah. And then there was other work that was done in the background, some of which has, has attracted a lot of attention recently relative to Western blot falsifications. But that actually, it was just the most obvious thing. And so people assumed, well, of course, that's what's causing it. And these other tangles, these tell tangles, they're probably involved too. But that was the genesis of it. Uh, where the mistake was, in my opinion, in, in looking at that as the cause, is that we had no reference range to look at. People don't ordinarily have their brains uh, examined as part Not of usually. 
autopsy. In fact, people aren't usually autopsied. No. So yes, that was present, but you need a reference range. And that reference range really should be uh, thousands, tens of thousands, if not millions, where you've examined their brains to see what happens normally. The same way when you get a blood chemistry test done, there's a reference range, range to tell you what's normal and what's outside of normal. And it can be huge. But we didn't have that. Instead, we had people looking at it and saying, wow, look at this. This is amazing. These clumps, these tangles have to be interfering. And they were right to an extent, to an extent. Right. And so what it is, is we all accumulate these, but not everyone gets Alzheimer's disease. So there are some people who are more resilient and we still don't know what that resilience factor is. And it's not just APOE4, it's not just genetics. Uh, it's educational background, social stimulation, physical stimulation. Um, there, there were healthy 25 year olds during the early parts of the pandemic who couldn't tell you what day of the week it was. Yeah, right. So th this is where uh, people used to be when they would get old and retired, they would stop having that daily mental stimulation. And with our neurons, one thing that's true, it's just like a muscle. The more you use it, the more efficient it is and the better it is. So the problem was really multifaceted, but people like easy answers. And so they latched on to beta amyloid and to tau and really sort of beat that one to death for a couple of decades. A long while, right? Longer, yeah. than, longer than usually do that. So where does a myriad come in and uh, what is the product you're developing and is it complementary or is it a replacement for the standard of care? Uh, it's going to be complementary to the standard of care. We work in a different lane than any of the disease-modifying treatments. There are characteristics of this drug that suggest it may ha might have some long-term benefit on progression. But what we're really focused on the fact is that it produces symptom relief, symptom management, right from the get-go. So the two core symptoms of Alzheimer's disease were actually defined by regulatory agencies. The first one is cognition. So they need to see an impairment in cognition that's not caused by a stroke or thyroid disease or some other treatable condition like a vitamin deficiency, cognition deficits. And those deficits then lead to a loss of independent function over time. So those are the two core symptoms. And that's what we direct our program at is improving cognition. And when you improve cognition, improving global function. This is where Dinepazole works as well. The disease modifying agents, they're hoping that by attenuating beta amyloid, that they will have a downstream effect on cognition and global function. And there's an evidence to suggest that there's some effect there that occurs, but it's not massive. And even in those studies, they're not stopping the disease, slowing right. the disease perhaps, but not stopping the disease. So we look at treatment of Alzheimer's disease the way you would look at treatment of any chronic disease. And that's with multiple therapies whether it's diabetes or high blood pressure, heart disease, any chronic disease, we treat with multiple drugs to get to the best possible place for the patient. But there was so much excitement about being able to cure the disease or sufficiently modify the disease that additional steps weren't really taken toward looking at multiple therapies to add on and layer on clinical benefit to patients. So now we're just sort of running, we ran the circle with disease modification and maybe a cure to back now, okay, how do we manage better? How do we manage patients better over the long haul? 
Parkinson's disease has done that literally for 40 plus years. We're just getting started here. Now, what do you expect to do? You know, drug development takes a long time, obviously. Where, what are the next steps for a myriad? Where do you expect to be in a year or two years? Uh, in a year or two years, we will be deep into phase three trials. That's another good thing about symptom relief or symptom management trials. They do not take as long as disease modification trials. Disease modification trials, the active treatment phase for a patient is 18 to 24 months. In symptom relief, symptom management trials, the active treatment phase can be as little as 12 weeks and as much as 24 weeks. So you're talking basically about anywhere from 17 to 30% of the time. And it's also at 17 to 30% of the cost because we don't do a lot of expensive scanning. We don't make people undergo spinal taps right. because these things aren't meaningful to us. Beta amyloid is not our target. Neurotransmission is our target. And so we like to use people the same way they would report to their family physician. Generally, they're going to be in a more demented state than the people in the disease-modifying trials. They're going to have really recognizable symptoms and may be almost slightly moderately demented by the time they actually go to a physician. So these are the people we are looking at. We rule out other causes of dementia, and then we treat. And with a symptom relief treatment, if you've got one, you're going to see a benefit. And you're going to see it in as little as three to four weeks. And if your drug is good, it will persist over the course of the trial. This is what our phase two data showed us. This is what the clinical trial program for Aricept showed for denepazil and for galantamine and rivastigmine and mementane even. It was the same type of thing. You see symptom relief effects early and they are maintained. What else are you working on besides uh, the Alzheimer's drug? Uh, well, there are other Alzheimer's drugs. So we have a number of molecules that we're examining in discovery phases. So I won't be talking about those much sure. now. But I would say if I try to define our focus, our focus is in that area of cell communication. Neuronal transmission is cell communication. One cell talking to another. Everything we do. If our cells actually had voices and we could hear their communication, it would be like in a football stadium on Super Bowl Sunday, right after a really crazy touchdown when everything is going wild. That is the quiet noise that our bodies make every millisecond of every day communicating with other cells within itself. And it's fabulous, it's amazing. So we're looking at other pathways in cell communication and Alzheimer's disease and trying to find other complementary ways to continue layering on improvements in neurotransmission, which will layer on improvements in global function and, and cognition. Terrific. Well, Sharon, my last question is just to ask if you have any time for any pleasure reading in addition to all the other things that you're doing, and if there's anything you would recommend or even is anything you would recommend we avoid? Um, I, I don't have as much time as I would like to have. Uh, I tend to gravitate toward books that uh, let me know something that I didn't know before but thought I knew and tell me how much I absolutely didn't know. So as far as books I would recommend, Jane Mayer's Dark Money is fabulous. Jack Cole's Private Empire was a major eye-opener because as we think about how important it is for the presidents we elect and the secretary of states that get appointed a big business like the CEOs of ExxonMobil, they tend to have input and insight with these leaders of other countries for a much longer period of time 
than our presidents and secretaries of state do. So it is sort of a private empire and getting some insights into the impact that they do have, especially in, in resource cursed countries in Africa, it was a real eye opener for me. I guess one of our presidents of, I think it was uh, Exxon, had the experience of actually being that secretary of state and it would have yeah. more influence probably and less hassle when he was working with Exxon. So. Uh, it probably was because he could sort of, Rex Tillerson, he could sort of run the ship the way he wanted. And I remember his selection really mystified me. And yeah. I read Private Empire after that. And after that, then it was like, oh, I understand. He still isn't a statesman, right. but he has an understanding of these people that we will never have. And a long-term 20, 25-year relationship with these leaders. Great. Well, Sharon Rogers, CEO of Myriad, I want to say thank you so much for joining me today on the Health This Podcast. Thank you very much, David. It was a pleasure speaking with you. You've been listening to the Health Biz Podcast with me, David Williams, president of Health Business Group. I conduct in-depth interviews with leaders in healthcare business and policy. If you like what you hear, go ahead and subscribe on your favorite service. While you're at it, go ahead and subscribe on your second and third favorite services as well. There's more good stuff to come, and you won't want to miss an episode. If your organization is seeking strategy consulting services in healthcare, check out our website, healthbusinessgroup.com.